Okay, so we have a lot uh, to do this morning, so I want to just dive into the passage. I want you to turn to Matthew 5, verse 11. Matthew 5, verse 11. Okay. All right, it's working. Good, cool. Um, All right. Let's read together. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's read that one more time. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, now, the first thing I want to talk about this morning is a shift that takes place in Christ's words. All right, now, if you have a Bible with headings, you're going to probably see that this verse is actually included in the subheading, the Beatitudes. Okay, it's included in the subheading, the Beatitudes. Now, that's a problem on on one hand, because many of uh, many many of the, the the men and women who have studied this book for a long time suggest that this is not a beatitude. This is actually the first passage, the first verse in this salt and light conversation. All right, and I think that's right on one level, but I think it's wrong on another level. In that you have the beatitudes, and then you have this pivot passage that that shifts the language of the Beatitudes to a very narrow focus, okay? And here's what I mean. Uh, read, read the Beatitudes with me really quick. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, all right? Verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are those who are persecuted. So you have this, this, uh, this, this um, section of Jesus' sermon, this, this description of what his people are like, and, and he's speaking about them in, in this, uh, these people, in those people, in the meek and the, and the peacemakers, okay? So, so it seems as if he's describing a people uh, who are not there, okay? And then... What changes? Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So you see this shift from this this sort of almost impersonal description of the people of God, right? Entering into the kingdom, having been made into sons of peace, right? From from spiritually bankrupt, you have this, this shift from this description of the people of God made ready for the kingdom to you. Blessed are you, okay? I think to understand that we have to read the context once, once again. The very first verse of chapter 5. Listen to how Matthew introduces this sermon. He says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, His disciples came to him. Now, notice it doesn't say the crowd came to him. It doesn't say the crowd came to him. It says his disciples came to him. 
Okay, so so there's almost this picture of Jesus seeing the crowds and leaving the crowds to go up the mountain to be followed only by his disciples. Okay, and I think what we're seeing here is that these are Jesus's words to his disciples, to all who trust him, to any who have decided to follow him. Now, don't think disciples narrowly about the 12, the 12 apostles, right, or the the 12 disciples are going to be talked about all throughout um, Matthew, but Matthew's language is not limited to those 12 people. We have a group of people who have decided to follow Jesus. And Jesus pivots from this external description, this, this distant description of a people made ready for the kingdom, and then he pivots from those people to you, to you disciples, any who have decided to follow him. And in In other words, I think if you've decided to follow Jesus, you in this room have decided to follow Jesus, then these words are spoken to you directly. Okay? These words are spoken to you. Okay? So Jesus has just described the character of his people, a people who were transformed from spiritual bankruptcy to righteous peacemakers. And he doesn't waste any time in clarifying to his disciples, you are those people. Okay, you follow me, you put your trust in me, you follow me to the kingdom. And that that description of 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 blessing and promise, that description of this trajectory from spiritual bankruptcy to righteous peacemaker, that description is about you. Okay, all these promises are for you. Now that there's about a three and a half second interval where you hear that as a disciple of Jesus and you go, what? That's amazing. Look, look, look at all these promises. Look, look, the kingdom of heaven will be mine. There'll be, I'll be comforted in my mourning. I'll inherit the earth with like, I'll be satisfied in my hunger, right? Like you get all these like, whoa, that's about me. And then you read the very last promise, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted. And all of a sudden it's like, ah, okay. All right. All right. Jesus says you, and I think he's talking to his disciples, but I also think he's talking to his disciples. Okay, he's talking to his disciples there, and he's talking to his disciples everywhere. He's talking to the church. He says, blessed are you. He says, but you should expect persecution. Jesus says, you should expect persecution. Why? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so all of a sudden, Jesus has created this parallel between his disciples and the prophets. All right? And he says, you'll be like them. That's the implication of this statement. He says, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And how were the, pers- how, how were the prophets persecuted? They were reviled and evil was uttered against them falsely, and they were persecuted, right? So he's, Jesus has all of a sudden created this parallel. He says, like, your, your, your community, your community of Christ followers has, has an analogy here in the community of the prophets, in that the world will respond to you in the same way the world responded to them. And we don't need to look far, far to see what kind of people he's talking about, because the chief of the prophets, John the Baptist, we just read about him. And what was, what was he like? I'm going to give you a, a brief description of the prophets that I think will cap, ca, encapsulate kind of what 
is here in this text, and I'm going to give you a few examples, okay? The prophets were like a living, breathing, walking, talking invitation to repent and to prepare for the kingdom of God. They were social outcasts. They were political outcasts. They were a living message of warning and of hope, calling the lost back to God's mercy. I'm not just getting this from the ether of like, oh, I've read about the prophets before. I mean, you can find this right here in Matthew. What was John the Baptist like? Well, he was, a, he was an outcast, right? He was an outcast. He didn't look like anybody in his society. He didn't feel comfortable among his society. People had to go out to him. Now, I'm not suggesting that you need to wear weird clothes and eat crickets. I'm not suggesting that. Actually, I think somebody told me that they weren't crickets. I just kind of put them in the category of crickets. Whatever they are, they're probably not pleasant. But that's what John the Baptist ate. But John the Baptist kind of represents this outcast dimension. And it's not just him, right? John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. What was Elijah like? He was an outcast, right? He was an outcast, perpetually hunted by the wicked, right? And Elijah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah, these people had no home in their homes, right? And it's not just that they were disliked. That's not what I'm trying to highlight. They were disliked because of who they were and what they said, which was, you people, if you don't change, the wrath of God is going to fall on you. Okay? The prophets came to wicked nations and they said, turn, turn. There's hope for those who turn. There's hope because God has grace and mercy. But if you don't turn, there will be destruction for you. That's what the prophets were like. They were like, they were like an embodied message. And when it, don't think, don't think embodied message like I don't have to speak because my actions are doing the speaking. Your actions will be doing the speaking and that action will highlight the words that are coming out of your mouth, which is repent and prepare for the coming kingdom. All right, that's the message of John the Baptist and that's the message of all the prophets. Jesus said, you follow me, you're going to be like they were and you're going to be hated just like they were. Okay? To follow Jesus is to become a living, breathing, walking, talking invitation to prepare, to repent and prepare for the kingdom of God. And if you live that way, people will hate you for it. But that shouldn't bother you. Listen to what he says. That shouldn't bother you. Why shouldn't it bother you? Because we work for the reward. Now, I'm going to take an aside here. I'm going to spend a few minutes to talk about something that is all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and something that is all throughout the book of Matthew, okay? The reward-driven discipleship of Christ followers. Your discipleship should be driven by the expectation of a reward. And this will make some of you uncomfortable because we were raised being taught bad ideas, right? And that, like, what, one of our goals here as pastors is to, is to uh, take away all the bad ideas, and replace them with good ones. This is all throughout the scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you with a few words. And they're actually Jesus' words, so I don't feel bad about it. Okay? I'm going to show you proof that Jesus wants you to do things like pray and love and serve and give for a reward. All right? He wants you to work for a reward. I'm going to give you proof. All right? This is from the sermon. I'm, I, I actually had a whole longer list 
And I thought, you know what? I don't have time for that. And also, this is all from the same sermon. Like, so I'm not actually like violating any principles that might make anybody uncomfortable. Okay, this is all from, he's saying this at the same time he's saying these words about salt and light. He's talking about reward. Let me read them to you. I lost my place. Here we go. For if you love those who love you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Did Christ just associate love with the reward? I think that's what happened. Let's keep reading. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The righteousness that you practice in secret you do that for the reward. That's what Jesus just said. And if you, if you do it in front of other people, to have them go, wow, man, you're really righteous, you don't get a reward, and that's a good reason not to do that. Okay? Let's keep reading. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay. Why do you give to the needy? For the Father's reward. That's why. Because there's a reward coming. Okay. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right. A couple more. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will Rewards you. Okay, I'm just going to summarize those passages that I just read. Why do we love the unlovable? Our Father's reward. Why do we do what's right? Our Father's reward. Why do we give to the needy? Our Father's reward. Why do we pray in secret? Our Father's reward. Why do we practice spiritual discipline? Our Father's reward. Everything that we are called to do is incentivized by the reward that God has promised for those who are faithful. Okay? Now that may sound mercenary. I feel that sometimes. Like you tell me I need to pray so that I can get a reward and not so that I want to just, you know, like that makes me feel uncomfortable, but hang on. I want to clarify something for you. Right now, spiritual or not, right now, everything you do, you do for the reward. Everything you do right now, you do for the reward. Proof? Your boss decides next week not to pay you. Does it make you uncomfortable? Right? Does that make you uncomfortable? Yeah, because why are you going to work? (laughs) Okay, and you plant an herb garden. You do everything right, and and nothing comes to fruition. It's just a bunch of dead seeds in the ground, right? Does that make you... Slightly uncomfortable, right? Because why do we plant? We plant for the harvest, right? Anne's case, the herb harvest. <laughs> Is that a word? Herb harvest? Okay, herb and cow. And Anne writes books and stuff um, about herbs and planting them. Okay, that's a, okay. So all I'm saying here. Is that what you do, you do for a reward. Why do you invest in people? You invest in people because of the reward of their fellowship, right? Everything you do is for the reward. All right, you get the idea. 
It isn't a question of whether you're seeking a reward. You are seeking a reward. I think that's a fundamental principle of human existence. You seek a reward. It's a question of who you're trusting for a reward. That's the big shift in Christians. It's not that, it's not that Christians are, are, are seeking rewards and, and others are not. It's, it's, it's who Christians are trusting for the reward. And we trust our Father who's promised a great reward. And the Father's reward, the best rewards, come by way of persecution. The best rewards come by way of persecution. Okay. Anybody tracking so far? Okay. But what if, what if persecution is not happening in your life? What if persecution isn't happening to you? All right, keep reading. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay. Jesus says, that you, and, he, and he's still talking about you, if you have committed to follow Jesus, these words are for you right now. You are the salt of the earth. Okay? Now, salt was a huge deal in the ancient world. Now, it was still used in the way that we use it to season things, but predominantly, salt was pivotal in ancient civilizations, because it was used as a preservative. You rub salt on meat, and it sticks around. You refrain from rubbing salt on meat. Or if you rub saltless salt on meat, you can't eat it the next day. I know there are some vegetarians in this room. Just, just try and get over that sort of the uncomfortableness of this analogy. There weren't many culinary options back in the day. And so, when you slaughtered an animal to feed your family, it was either a feast and you expected that thing to be gone by the end of the day, or you needed salt so it would feed your family for a long time. Okay? All right. And Jesus says, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, light was a huge deal in the ancient world because it pushes back the darkness. Now it seems like, oh yeah, we use light too, Ben. I get that. I get your like first gut instinct. Like, hey, look, look, Ben, still a big deal. But I want you to imagine what the world was like when it wasn't all civilization. Not 90% of our world is civilization. Okay? Well, that's not true. 90% of the world that I live in is civilization. So, like, 
For instance, if I go on a walk in the middle of the night, my life's probably not going to be compromised. Okay? But, but to travel from one city to another city was sometimes the matter of months of traveling in the darkness. And in the evening, there were monsters. <laughs> there were lions. There were hyenas. There was scary stuff. Right? The, the stuff we can only really access with the Discovery Channel. Okay? That was the real deal. That was the world. Okay? And, and, and imagine traveling from one place to another and you're, you're exhausted and you're terrified and then you see on a hill this light. What does that mean for you? Safety. Safety. Right? The monsters don't go there. Okay. All right. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And he says, you're the light of the world. That's what you are. But you can lose that. You can lose that dynamic. Okay? All right. How does salt lose its saltiness? This is a, this is a good question. There's a lot written on this. Because if you know anything about elements, you know that elements, molecules. I don't, guys. I haven't taken a chemistry class since I was 17. I don't really know much about this stuff. But I read a lot this week. So I'm just going to try and rehearse what I read for you. And if I say something that's radically inaccurate to sort of like a chemical framework, you can just talk to me about it later. Um, So sodium chloride is what we use as salt. And we get it from the store, right? Morton's. Um, You know, the little... A little lady with the umbrella. She's got a bag. That's where we get our salt, right? Or other places. Um, and it actually, salt can't lose saltiness. So what is this talking about? Like you can't, there is no salt, sodium chloride that like you set it on a shelf and then five years later it doesn't taste salty. That's not how salt works. So what is this referring to? All right. We get our salt from ways that purify the source such that when we put salt on our food, that's just straight, pure salt. That's not how it worked back in the day. Back in the day, you had to go to salt marshes, okay? Salt marshes, just think of, if you've you've ever, just Google the Dead Sea. Just Google the Dead Sea, and what you're going to see is that there's a big body of water, and around that body of water, there's just crusty stuff. White, crystallized, crusty stuff. And you scoop that up, right? Scoop that up, and then you go sell it at the market. Which sounds super gross, but that's what happened. They were dependent on salt marshes. They're not digging mines. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're not distilling the waters of the seas in, in the ways that we do. They're, 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 they're going to the salt marshes. Now, the thing about the salt marsh, salt, was that it was impure. Okay, The salt marsh salt was sodium chloride plus other stuff. You know, minerals and and gunk, <laughs> okay? And then the thing about it is, there was salt coming from these salt marshes that was really pure, and then there was salt that was not, okay? And if it was not very pure, then that sodium chloride content could actually be sifted out over time from this salt container that you got at your house. 
And, and when that happened, you would taste that thing and it tasted like nothing. And that's when you realized that your salt was worthless. And you know what they did with it? They threw it out. It's in the Bible. They threw it out. Actually, uh, people still do this in, in Palestine. If you have a flat house, if you have a flat, flat roof, uh, people still take uh, uh, this kind of material and they put it on the roof because it actually hardens the material, uh, the, 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 the soil, mud stuff. Okay. All right. So much for salt. Okay. If the salt's made dull. Now, I, I wrote this because we have translated this. If salt has lost its taste, which is a little bit of a stretch of a translation, this word lost its taste, okay, is used four times in the New Testament. Twice it's used to tell this story of Jesus talking about salt losing its taste. And the other times it's used is to warn Christians not to become foolish. Okay? Not to become foolish. Now that may seem like a wide chasm. Like what's the, the range here is like salt losing its flavor and, and, and people becoming foolish. But it's not because if you think about the word dull. Right? We, we say that guy's... Because a little dull. What we mean is that all the sharp edges of his intellect have worn down over time. Right? Right? This dullness is a thing that can describe salt, and it's also a thing that can describe your mind. Right? You can, you can become dull over time, just like salt can lose its flavor over time. Now, interestingly enough, this is actually wordplay in Aramaic. Jesus is, is, is almost always teaching in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the day. And uh, to be salted, the word to be salted is tapal in Aramaic. To be foolish or to be made dull is tabal in Aramaic. So Jesus is kind of performing this little pun here to teach people the dynamic that you're exploring when you're thinking about how we as Christians relate to the world. All right? We will either be salty or we'll be dull. Okay? Okay. And Jesus says, you're the light of the world, but you can lose that. How do you lose the light? You you hide it under a basket. So that no one ever sees it. Okay. Here's what I think is going on here. The The call of the kingdom... Your prophet call. If you're in Christ, you have a prophet call. And the call of the kingdom has a sharp edge. And it's painful to give. The offer of forgiveness. You go out and you just go talk to somebody. Talk to somebody on the street. And tell them the gospel. At some point, you're going to have this awkward moment when you realize that this guy who always thought he was a relatively good person has just been told that he's got a wicked heart, a heart that's earned the wrath of God and the condemnation of God. The author of forgiveness implies sin and wrath and hell, and that's painful. And Paul describes the work of Christ's people as the fragrance of life and death. Okay? You do what you're called to do, and to some, you'll be the fragrance of life. And they'll want to draw near to you. And they'll want to learn more. Who is this Jesus? And then there are some, they're going to see your works, and they're going to hate you for it. Because they smell death. 
Okay. But that call, which has such a sharp edge, right? The call, the prophet call that we've been given and the prophet message that we are to embody, that, that message, those works, that constant reminder that there is hope for the lost, that wickedness has consequences, that there's a better way full of love and hope and joy, that's, that's, that's the call that pushes back the darkness. That's the call that pushes back the darkness. Here's what I mean. Christians, just like salt, just like light, as they're proclaiming the message of Jesus, and, it, and as they're proclaiming the consequences of wickedness, the world sees that, and they think, oh, that's, that, that's me. That describes me. And it creates this situation of discomfort. And that situation of discomfort is the pushing back of the darkness. You're shining light on the hearts of men. Okay? Now, Jesus says you have a choice. You have that light. You have a choice to shine it or to stifle it. You have a choice to shine your light or to stifle it. The principle here throughout this passage is that the world will respond to the prophet call of Christians in one of two ways. They will either hate you or they will glorify your Father in heaven. There are are two ways that the world will respond to you if you're faithful. If you're faithful, the world will either hate you or they will give glory to, to your Father who's in heaven. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Nobody likes to be hated. There are some people who kind of pride themselves in being ornery, and and they will suggest that they don't mind. They don't mind if the whole world hates them. I'm, I'm suggesting to you that that is not true. That's actually, I like the feeling of being the cool, you know, black sheep, which is another way of saying, I don't care what most people think about me, but I do care what some people think about me. Okay? In fact, nobody hates. Nobody likes to be hated. So you might be tempted to stifle that light or to sift that salt. You might be tempted to enjoy all the kingdom promises without the prophet's call. Now listen, this is me. The Lord is transforming my coward heart. I'm scared when I talk to people about Jesus. I'm scared at the prospect of talking to people about Jesus. It's okay. It's okay to see that and recognize it. All right? It's okay to feel that fear, but it's not okay to stifle that light. See what I'm saying? You're tempted. In that moment, I don't have to be as salty as maybe the other guys. I don't have to shine my light so brightly. I'm just going to be a Christian. I'm just going to... I'm just going to be a good person and love people and enjoy the kingdom someday. Jesus' response to that feeling is that salt that's lost its saltiness is worthless and will be thrown out and trampled. Salt that's lost its saltiness is worthless and it will be thrown out and trampled. So, here's, here's the big Here's the big application of this this passage. Are you a Christian? 
You don't have to raise your hand. But, but if you are a Christian, if you have decided to follow Jesus, I want you to think the words, yes, I am a Christian, and this applies to me. Okay? Are you a Christian? Here's your call. Bring the light. Shine the light. Be the salt. And look forward to the lavish rewards of the kingdom when people hate you. Okay? Or, or, here's your other choice. You can sift your salt and you can hide your light and you'll lose the rewards of the kingdom. And you'll be trampled as an outcast. There is no third direction. You'll be salty or you'll be sifted. You'll shine light or you'll hide it. And you may be tempted to say, well, what is it? I don't, how do I know if I'm shining light? What, how do I know if I'm being salty? I don't want to give it. I don't, I, now, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But I don't want to give you all the ways. I don't want to give you a list of ways that you can be salty. I don't want to give you a list of ways that you can shine the light. Because I'm betting by the might of the Holy Spirit that you already know. You already know it right now. And I'm betting by the might of the Spirit that when you feel the temptation to put that light on a bowl, the Spirit's going to hang on. Hang on. Here's the choice you're making right now. Feel that. That's one of the ways the Lord works. Okay. I'm pleading with you this morning to shine your light because the Father who sees will reward you. I'm I'm pleading with you this morning to be so salty that people hate you. To be so shiny that people don't want you around. Okay? Because if you do that, the Father who sees, He's got the reward of the prophets waiting. He's got the reward of the prophets waiting. Okay. All right. Here's some application and clarification. Application and clarification. First, I want you to notice how impossible it is to be salt and light outside of society. I want you to notice how impossible it is to be salt and light outside of society. Now, some of my favorite writers in the history of the Christian faith were monks. So I almost feel bad about saying that monasteries were a terrible idea. A terrible idea. There is no way to do the work of Christianity by removing yourself from society. Okay? See what I'm saying? There's no way. Listen listen to his words. He said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You know what the implication is? You ought to be on that hill. You ought to be on that hill. The world should see you living and breathing and thinking and talking and struggling with the message of Jesus. Right? It should be visible. And that means having tough conversations about all sorts of cultural issues. It means having tough conversations about all sorts of cultural issues. Our culture is at a crisis. We, we are at a threshold. I know that because I have... Our, our, our business has clients in Toronto. They're about 15 years past that threshold. And that tra- threshold is what most people call post-Christianity. 
we have the privilege of speaking to our culture in this moment. You should leverage that. You need to be the city on the hill, shining your light. Okay? Don't buy into the, don't buy into the, to the temptation to do Christianity privately. To, to, to just be good. Just go to work and be faithful. I don't think that's enough. Now, now, what I'm not saying is you're not a Christian unless you go to Africa and adopt 14 kids. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is if your, if your faith isn't evident to the people around you, if, the, if your faith isn't making people uncomfortable, th- then there's probably a problem. Okay? Okay. Two, politics versus proclamation. Okay. We've been talking about this for several years. And you know me, I'm always talking about social media. Okay. There's a lot of engagement right now in the realm of politics. And it's wearing the clothes of Christianity. Okay? There's a lot of engagement right now on social, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, out in, out in the media. There's a lot of engagement right now. And it's political engagement wearing the, the dressings of Christianity. And I just told you that if you're going to be faithful to Christ, you need to engage your culture. But I just implied that you can engage your culture as a Christian wearing the clothes of Christianity and not actually be doing the work of proclamation of the gospel. How do you know? How do you know when you're contributing to a conversation whether you're doing it wearing your prophet's call? Whether you're issuing the prophet's message? How do you know? I think the key is right here at the end of this passage. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Give glory to your Father in heaven. You're going to be engaging people who drive you nuts. You're going to be engaging people who suggest that you, by being you, are violating their civil rights. Okay, And you're going to be tempted to set aside your faith and just engage your mind. And I'm saying... That's wrong. That's wrong. Okay, we, we, we're not called to be the best political minds outside of our Christian framework. Okay? And I, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you from this passage that to the degree that you're craving and praying for that unbeliever to give glory to the Father in heaven, you're going to be okay. Okay? You should not be engaging someone unless you're yearning for them to give glory to your Father in heaven. You should not be engaging someone on social media or at the coffee shop or in your office about politics unless you're yearning for them to give glory to your Father in heaven. That's the litmus test. If you're pleading with the Lord for this person to give glory to the Father, to join the brotherhood, right? Just like you to be saved from a life of sin into the fellowship of the church. If you're pleading with the Lord for that, if it's a distraction, you can't really focus so much on the, on the, on the trajectory of the conversation because you're pleading with the Lord for this brother or sister to be saved, right? I think you're going to be okay. However, 
If you're not thinking at all, you're not thinking even at all about that person giving glory to the Father, just step aside for a minute. Like You're not the only mind in the country. Somebody else is probably to, going to engage them. Step aside. Pray. Ask the Lord to reorient your heart. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. I'm going to add this here because I think it's a really helpful question. It's also a very disruptive question. How do people respond to your faith, your faith personally? Like you living as a Christian, right? You're exhibiting the gospel. You're preaching the gospel. You're inviting people to come to church. You're inviting people to consider Christ, right? How do people respond to that? If you, if you can't answer that question, then you might have sifted some salt. Right? Like, if your faith is so invisible to those around you that they don't actually have a response, you know, they, don't feel any, they don't feel any rage or any compulsion to give glory to the Father in heaven, you should pray. You should ask the Lord to change your heart. You should ask the Lord to make you more focused on the prophet call. Make sense? This is an audit question. You can bring this question back all the time. What, was anybody upset about my proclamation of the gospel this week? No? Okay. Did anybody give glory to the Father in heaven because, because they saw my good works? No? Okay. Let's, let's plead with the Lord for, for greater faithfulness. Just keep it in your pocket. Okay. And finally, not finally, I added one more yesterday. Penultimately. <laughs> Listen to what he says. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is no divorce in the Christian framework of good words and good works. Right? Those aren't two different categories. They're not. They don't, you, can't, you can't faithfully preach the gospel and not be living the gospel. That's, that's impossible. All right? What they're going to see is your good works, which means your good words, and it means you're embodying those good words in love and in peacemaking and in meekness and in service. The reason I say that is because often when we think about faithfulness to gospel proclamation, we're thinking about how many conversations have I had about Jesus this month? And that's a good question to ask, but, but there's a more three-dimensional focus to your prophet call, right? You're, you should be disturbing people not merely by your words, by your invitation, by the gospel, the gospel sharp edge. You should be disturbing people by the way you're loving, by the way you're making peace, by the way you're faithful, by the way you serve. Okay. And lastly, to the degree that you, 
To the degree that you're faithful to the gospel, you will lose friends. You could lose jobs. You will lose opportunities. You will lose social status. Some of you already have. Sometimes it's explicit. Sometimes it's impossible to ignore. And sometimes you reflect back and you think, man, that's an opportunity I should have had. Maybe it's because I made these people uncomfortable. Maybe it's because I stepped on some toes with my gospel mission. Whatever it is, if you have lost those friends, or if you've lost jobs, or mobility opportunities, or social status, if your neighbors talk about you behind your back because, because you make them uncomfortable, you can look forward to your great reward. The prophet's reward is waiting for you. Amen? Okay, let's take this supper together.